A Life's Work by Rachel Cusk is one mother's account of pregnancy and the first year of her baby's life. So the book pretty much spans a little under two years. And I, I found this book on like a New York Times, like best memoir list or something. And I was drawn to it not only because of the topic of motherhood, but also because it was very controversial. This author, Rachel Cusk, was criticized for being a terrible mother, for hating children, when it seemed that all she was doing was talking about what motherhood is really like. And it's like, yes, we all know that having a baby is beautiful and wonderful and we are so grateful and, 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 and it's fucking hard and sometimes terrible and the sleep deprivation drives you insane. So we need more people talking about that. You know, there are enough books and doctors and mothers out there talking about the joys of motherhood. And I, for one, would like to hear about the other side of things because I was shocked by parenthood. And I thought that I did lots of research. I read books. I hired a doula. I talked to my mom. And none of it prepared me for the reality of my experience. It wasn't until I was actually in it that I was able to have real conversations with people who had gone through something similar. And I think maybe part of the fear is that of like people not sharing these things is that it's not everybody's experience <laughs> and you don't want to scare people. But then when somebody is having a hard time and it's just like, how come nobody told me? And it's like, well, now, now we can talk about it. Now let's talk about it. I know what you're going through. I know what it's like to have a baby with colic. I know what it's like to have a baby with reflux. Um, and I didn't share these things with you before because if your baby doesn't have colic and doesn't have reflux, then, then what's the point of, of scaring you? So I guess maybe that's part of it. But anyway, in the edition that I read, there, there's an introduction to the book. And then before the introduction, there's an introduction to the edition. So this edition was written three years after the book was published. And on page 10, she writes, I am certain that my own reaction three years ago to the book I have now written would have been to wonder why the author had bothered to have children in the first place if she thought it was so awful. This is not a history or study of motherhood, nor, in case anyone has read this far and still retained such a hope, is it a book about how to be a mother. I have merely written down what I thought of the experience of having a child in a way that I hope other people can identify with. And I wanted to highlight this because this is a great lesson for all of us that, one, our writing is not for everyone. Okay, this book was clearly not for everyone, but there, there were a lot of people that it was definitely for. And two, sometimes... Your experience of something is enough. Sometimes your experience is all there is. You don't have to share wisdom or lessons or everything that you've learned. You could just tell people what happened. And that's it. And there is value in that. Okay, so Rachel wrote this book during the... She has two, two daughters. So she wrote this book during the pregnancy and early months of her second daughter. And there is something to be said for writing about this stuff as it's happening, because it is incredible how much we forget. Um, even later in the book, she says something um, to her, like her mom said that her babies never cried. I just thought that was so funny because my mom said the same thing. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Your babies never cried. Like these moms forget and they just like remember the, the good things. And I do the same thing. I don't remember how hard it was and, and what specifically was hard. But when I was in it, when I was going through it, I didn't think I would forget any of it because it was so hard. But I was also so tired. And when you're that sleep deprived, you forget things. So if Sam and I have another baby, 
which we would like to, I, I would want to use it as an opportunity to write about my experiences in real time each week. Now, when I had George and Layla, I was writing my newsletter. And of course, I did write about the experience sometimes. But there was a part of me that didn't want to write it about it every week. Um, because I was worried about my audience. I was worried that my readers would be like, okay, we get it. You're going through, you know, you have an infant. Um, we've heard you write about this already. We don't want to hear more. Like I was thinking about them instead of just like really leaning into it, which is what I would want to do next time because it is so interesting now. Like after reading Rachel's book, the the little details, the little experiences that you go f- through each week because everything changes every week when you have a baby. Um, and now I just think that it's so interesting. So if um, if I have another baby, I, I really think that I would want to just like during that time for my newsletter each week, it's going to be all about motherhood, something that happened that week. And, you know, if I'm inspired to write something else, I will. But um, but being OK with it just being that and also you know, it was very stressful with both of my kids to be trying to come up with things to write each week when I was, you know, I was so focused on their schedule and their sleeping and my sleeping. And it was hard to be creative during that time. And so to try to think outside of that now seems silly. And and what's the point of that? Because it's so interesting to talk about this moment in time that you are definitely going to forget about, that I am definitely going to forget about. Okay, I want to start by jumping to the end of the book because I want to highlight something that I've already been talking about, which is that motherhood in the first year is really hard, but women seem to have a hard time saying it's hard, period. Like they always have to include disclaimers. They always have to say, but it's wonderful too. And they always have to talk about the good things instead of being like, this fucking sucks. And so in this passage that I'm going to share, a friend of hers named Miranda comes over This friend also has an infant named Alexander. And so they're going through the same experience at the same time. And she's just trying to talk to her friend about it. So on page 207, she writes, Everything I said, Miranda agreed with, meekly, which just made me talk more. I talked about how difficult it all was, about the anarchy of nights, the fog of days, about friendlessness and exile from past and exclusion, about the wordless tyranny of babies and the strange, obsessive task of being alone with them all day, about my feelings of claustrophobia, my feeling that I was shut in a box, that I couldn't breathe. That's right, that's right, Miranda would say, nodding her head distantly. It got to the point where I thought she wasn't listening, until just then she spoke. But it's great as well, she said. You mustn't forget all the good things. She said it quite firmly, but for a minute, I really didn't know what she was talking about. It was as if I was reading one of those books again. I almost said, there aren't any good things. She had Alexander back by this time, and he was quiet because she was feeding him again. I wondered if she had said it because she thought she ought to. I wanted to ask her what the good things were. So I just wanted to really emphasize how people talk about how great it is all the time, but they don't talk about the real truth of how they're feeling a lot of times because they're not supposed to feel that way because we should be happy. We should be grateful. We should be full of love for our babies. And I think what Rachel is saying here and what I feel is that it's okay to feel both things and it's okay to not feel them simultaneously. You can feel like it sucks and you can say it. You don't have to be like, it sucks, but she's wonderful. You don't have to put disclaimers out for everything. And and we're really getting into something here that um, I am, I'm still wrapping my head around. But here is another really good example of not putting in a disclaimer, of just saying the thing that you're feeling and thinking. So a friend of her and her husband comes to stay overnight, and it's now the next morning, and none of them have gotten any sleep. So on page 191, she writes, 
the friend has overheard from her room something of our nocturnal adventures and come away with the mostly correct impression that nobody slept at all. You've got to do something, she says. You're making a rod for your own back. A desire to cry and confess, to seek some impartial therapeutic embrace comes over me. I feel suddenly that I have experienced trauma. For almost a year of nights, I have gone to bed as one would go to bed knowing that the front door was wide open, that there was something on the stove, that the alarm clock was set to go off hourly until dawn, with a new method of silencing it to be devised somehow each time. <laughs> I thought this was so fucking funny and real. So the, the line that really stood out to me was, I feel suddenly that I have experienced trauma. <laughs> There's no disclaimers. She's not saying like, you know, of course it's not trauma and maybe I'm being dramatic. No, I feel that I have experienced trauma. This is how she feels and she's honoring it. She's going all in. And this is something that I have become more aware of in my own writing and others writing is when we write disclaimers, it waters down the thing that we initially want to share. Okay, let me give you like a silly example. Here's an example. I did not get what all the fuss was over the Barbie movie. There, I said it. Okay, I'm putting it out there. I'm, I'm feeling a little bit vulnerable with that statement because, because I am a feminist and I, I understand that it's a very important movie. And I just heard so many people say how amazing it was. And to see these women's faces light up when they told me the Barbie movie, you have to see it. I was just... I was so excited and maybe I just heard too many things before I saw the movie that I was let down, but I was a little let down. So I am, I am brainstorming about a piece right now that I'm really fucking fired up about and I can't wait to write. But one thing that I was going to include is this, this admission that I did not get what all the fuss was over the Barbie movie. Now, I am not going to say all of the things I just said to you. I understand it's an important movie and it was still, there were still good parts and, you know, there were some good scenes and, and I get it. I'm not going to put that because it waters it down, the thing that I'm trying to say. And here's, here's the thing. There are going to be some people, maybe even one person out there, maybe it's only one person out there that agrees with me about this. Maybe somebody else out there did not get what all the fuss was about over the Barbie movie. If I just write that, that is going to really land with that person. And they're going to be like, thank you. Yes, I'm not crazy. I didn't get what all the fuss was either. As soon as I add, I understand it's important, that person is going to be like, oh yeah, I understand it's important too. And now I feel shitty that I, that I don't, don't get what it's all about. So you got to just lean in to the things that you feel and just say them. Not including disclaimers is, I think, in the same vein as writing unsparingly about yourself. When you write unsparingly about yourself, you just write the shitty thing. That's it. You write the shitty thing. You don't try to redeem yourself. You don't try to redeem your, yourself in any way because it takes away from it and now I don't believe you. So this is a, a bit of a longer story that I'm going to read to you, but it's really funny and it, it goes to this concept of writing unsparingly about yourself and going all in. So on page 85, she writes, one morning when she is six weeks old, I am alone at home trying to get her to go to sleep. I am extremely tired. The night has been filled with fireworks, with surreal adventures and Olympian feats of endurance, and dawn has arrived like a hangover. She and hence I have not slept for many hours. For perhaps the 20th time in 10 hours, I feed her and put her down in her cradle. I am not asking for a solid stretch. I, I merely require a few minutes to myself, gluing parts of my face back on and saying things aloud in front of the mirror to see if I've actually gone mad. 
At this point, I don't just want her to go to sleep. She has to go to sleep. Otherwise, I don't know what will happen. My position is at once reasonable, utterly desperate, and non-negotiable. I put her firmly in her cradle. I remove myself to the bathroom and close the door. There is a long moment of silence that is both blessed and threatening. It is filled with my command and with the possibility that her requirements will not yield to mine, that she continues to exist beyond the limit of my patience, my love, my ability to own her. Then, next door, she cries. I begin to shout. I don't quite know what I'm shouting, something about it being unfair, about it clearly being completely unreasonable that I should want five minutes on my own. Go to sleep, I shout, now standing directly over her cradle. I shout not because I think she might obey me, but because I am aware of an urge to hurl her out of the window. She looks at me in utter terror. It is the first frankly emotional look she has given me in her life. It is not really what I was hoping for. Okay. Okay. So... When I read this very unflattering passage of this mother, there's a few things I feel. One, I am impressed that she's willing to share the darker parts of herself. Okay, I think it's it's brave to admit your faults. Also, it makes me feel better about myself. You know, all the times that I did something terrible and yelled at my kids or grabbed them it made me feel ashamed. But she's writing about her own time when she lost it. And it makes me feel less alone. And it makes me feel like I'm not a terrible hurt person. You know what it makes me feel like? I am human. She's do, she's she's sharing this dark thing that really just makes her human. The, the, the sentence that really stood out to me was she said, I am, an, I am aware of an urge to hurl her out of the window. Okay, when you write a sentence like that, there is a huge part of me that would probably want to say, of course, I'm not going to hurl her out the window. Of course, I, don't, I wouldn't actually hurl her out the window. And I don't really mean that I would do that, okay? but that takes away from it. It happened. You felt it. It was there. Just go for it. Say it. And the other thing, the final thing to all this is that it's funny. It's always funny in hindsight. There's one more piece here that just goes, um, adds to the point of, of writing unsparingly about yourself. And, and I'm just going to continue this story. Um, on page 86, she writes, eventually she goes to sleep, silently, submissively, declining my help. Her withdrawal from me fills me with shame. The sleep itself, so longed for, is unbearable. I want to wake her up, proffering love. Now that she is still and quiet, my love is once more perfect, and she is not even awake to see it. I drag myself to the telephone and sob. I shouted at her, I confess. In the end, I confess it to several different people, none of whom gives me the absolution I am looking for. Oh dear, they say, poor baby. They do not mean me. <laughs> so... In this passage, she sounds absolutely petulant, which I feel this way all the time. Um, this this one line here, she says, now that she is still and quiet, my love is once more perfect and she is not even awake to see it. Hmm. <laughs> so um, recently, my son, George, had his first day of school. At, he, he started at a new school and um, he had to be potty trained for this new school. And he was. We potty trained him in the couple weeks leading up to the new school, but it was a big transition. And also at his old school, when he went to the bathroom, there was always a teacher there to help him, like very hands-on help him. At this school, it's very independent um, driven. So they do not even go into the bathroom with him. So he has to do everything on his own. So anyway, he peed himself during nap time. And then when I picked him up, as soon as he got in the car, he peed himself in his car seat. And then he came home and he was an absolute terror. And Sam, my husband, said, you know, this is a really hard transition for him. And I said, yeah, I wasn't thinking about him. I was thinking about me. 
And then Sam said that I was being vulnerable just by sharing the truth. You know, like I did not want to say, yeah, I wasn't thinking about him. I was thinking about me because that is the most shitty thing I could possibly say. And it's the most shitty thing I could possibly think. But that's what was going on for me. And I told him. And I, when I did it, I had my arms around him and it was like a, you know, I guess I was, it was a vulnerable position to be in physically. And um, it solidifies even further that I don't have to add, I'm ashamed of myself because it's obvious. Like who wants to admit this thing? Like everybody knows that this is something shameful to admit. And, and that's why it's a cool thing to be able to do. Okay, let's move on from this. Hold on, I need a sip of coffee. Okay, let's get into a couple of uh, granular writing things. So there was a uh, an analogy and a run-on sentence that were really good that I wanted to highlight. Let's talk about what made them stand out. First, I'll talk about the analogy. It happened on page 191. And um, this is from a passage that I was reading before when the, uh, the friend comes to stay over for the night. So on page 191, she writes, since we last saw her, the friend, the evening before, we have run marathons, negotiated the Maastricht Treaty, extinguished forest fires. Our daughter now sits on the bed between our broken bodies like some triumphal mini-Napoleon, waving her rattle in victory. This was such an image for me. And when you make an analogy, more, the more details that you can bring, the more parallels between the two things, the more vivid and funny and real the analogy becomes. So here she has four four she has negotiated the maastricht treaty between our broken bodies some triumphal mini napoleon waving her rattle in victory instead of a flag um this really created an image of it was so dramatic to compare after a night with an infant of you know this this battleground you know if she had just said the maastricht treaty and between our broken bodies you know it I don't think it would have landed as much, but the more details that she brought in, the more I could really picture the comparison and it made it so rich. Okay, and then here's a run-on sentence um, where she's talking about pregnancy. So on page 23, she writes, the first trimester is characterized by nausea and fatigue. The second trimester is characterized by a large stomach and a feeling of well-being. In the third trimester, you may experience bloating around the face, swelling of wrists and ankles, varicose veins, piles, chronic heartburn, constipation, clumsiness, forgetfulness, fatigue, feelings of apprehension about the birth and a longing for pregnancy to be over. <laughs> so <laughs> this was a very funny run-on sentence. And we've talked about run-on sentences before. Um, Cheryl Strait had a really, um, really funny long one in, in her book, Wild, um, where she talked about everything she packed, which was completely ridiculous. In um, The Glass Castle, Jeanette Walls had the run-on sentence of all the things that her mom purchased for her art when they had like no money to be spending, which was just completely ridiculous. Here, here are the things that she does, okay? First, the alliteration. Let's talk about it. We've got C alliteration here. Chronic heartburn, constipation, clumsiness. Okay, you got those three C's in a row. Then we have F forgetfulness, fatigue, feelings of, of apprehension, okay? So forgetfulness, fatigue, and feelings. And then this last thing, which is really interesting, is that she ends with a, a, a feeling that is conflicting. So feelings of apprehension about the birth, so like this, this nerve-wracking, uh, 
like terror about what is going to happen and not wanting it to happen. But then also a longing for pregnancy to be over because being really pregnant is, it's just not fun. You're huge. Uh, when I, when I had my daughter for my second one, it was much worse. I was just like, so achy, so big, so tired, could not get comfortable in any position. Like you just, you want the baby out of you. But then I was terrified of childbirth. So I think this is a really, um, I wanted to point this out and I know it cause I've talked about run on sentences before, but this was a new thing to add this thing at the end where it's conflicting. Like I want this, but I also want this, this opposite thing. And then one final thing about this, the two sentences before it were very short. So the first trimester is characterized by two things, nausea and fatigue. The second trimester is characterized by two things, a large stomach and a feeling of well-being. And then the third trimester, it's this long, long, long list of all these things, of these horrible things, <laughs> of, of how horrible pregnancy is. So it's funny. It's funny. Okay. Something really interesting that she does in this book is she writes almost as if her husband doesn't exist. She addresses this in the introduction. So Rachel is a, she's a fiction writer and I'm not sure, but I think this might've been her first memoir. So in the introduction on page 10, she writes, as a novelist, I admit that I find this candid type of writing slightly alarming. You think? Um, Aside from prospects of self-revelation, it demands on the part of the author a willingness to trespass on the lives of those around him or her. In this case, I have trespassed by omission. I have not said much about my particular circumstances, nor about the people with whom I live, nor about the other relationships inevitably surrounding the relationship with my child. Instead, I have used aspects of my life as a canvas upon which my theme, which is motherhood, may conveniently be illustrated. I thought this was really interesting. I'll, I'll, well, let me let me show you this passage when she's pregnant and in, in the hospital and she's getting ready for a C-section. On page 47, she writes, for three days, I eat nothing, read nothing, think nothing. When Wednesday comes, I make panicked telephone calls at dawn in a spasm of terror. I return to bed and a nurse comes. Then she leaves me alone. Presently, a midwife comes. They're ready for you, she says. We get in a lift and descend two floors. We weave our way along corridors, turning left and right. So, in this whole thing, she's not mentioning her husband, but we know that he's there. And she even says, we get in a lift and descend two floors. And you're like, uh, you could read it as her and the midwife who comes to get her. But you could also read it as her and her husband and her midwife. And maybe there's more. Who, who knows who else is there? And she's, she's purposely doing this. Her husband is her partner. He's with her the whole way through this whole experience, this whole book. But we don't learn anything about him other than the fact that he exists and that they're co-parenting. Um, So if you want to write about your experience, but don't really want to include someone else who is there, you don't have to. Like often for myself, Sam is there. He's he's there in in my life and a lot of my stories. and And I always kind of feel like I have to mention him, even when his presence doesn't necessarily add to my experience or to the story I'm trying to tell or to the point I'm trying to make. And so what I'm taking from this is I can not only take creative liberties to leave him out of the story, I can, like Rachel, make it known that he's there, but I am still only going to write about my experience. And this book, is, it's, very, it's very much about what's going on for her, in her mind, in her body, with her child. Even though her husband is a part of that story, that is not the story that she wanted to tell. All right, so um, let me just tell you my overall impression of the book. I thought it was brilliant at times and too smart at other times. Like the writing was so eloquent and funny. Like on page 32, she writes, I myself have no happier or more rational expectation of labor than I have of being murdered. That's so fucking funny. But then like not easy to read it at other times. 
like I had to reread passages and stuff. So I found a passage that captured this back and forth that I felt. In the introduction to this edition, she writes on page four, I didn't write a life's work because I wanted your approval. I didn't write it because I was vain either, or lazy, or proud, or malevolent. I didn't write it because I hated being a mother, or hated my child, or hated any child. I wrote it because I am a writer, and the experience of ambivalence that characterized the early stages of parenthood seemed to me to be kith and kin of the writer's fundamental ambivalence towards life, an ambivalence that is obscured by the organized social systems human communities devise, and that the writer or artist is always trying to recover and resolve. (laughs) Okay, so in the first half of the passage, I'm like, yes, this is awesome. I love how she's going after the critics and she's telling us why she didn't write it. And it's so clear. And then the second half, I'm like, my brain hurts and I don't know what this means. And I'm sure that it's like very important and uh, powerful. And if somebody explained it to me, I'd be like, wow, that is brilliant. But like, I am not just putting it together easily on my own. And I just think that, you know, the kind of reading that I like to do is where it's just easy and I just understand everything and I, and I don't have to think that much. So, um, for yourself, that's, that's something for you to consider. If you're having a baby for the first time and you're sick of the books out there about becoming a mother, you, you might like this or it might scare you. I don't know, (laughs) but it might make you feel a little bit more prepared for reality. If you already have a baby, um, I found it to be mostly entertaining and relatable, and it just brought me back to the dark times that I forgot about. Now, I think that if I were to have read this before having a baby, um, I still would have thought that it was funny, but I also think I would have been like, well, that's not how it's going to be for me. Um, And, you know, it's not. It's her experience, and there's always going to be differences in your experiences. But the the darkness of it was was really dark. (laughs) And I, I wonder if I would have just been like, okay, well, she must have had like uh, just like a really tough time for whatever reason. And I'm not going to have that tough of a time, but I did. I had a tough time. Okay. Um, next up, I'm reading In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado. It is a woman's account of domestic abuse in a queer relationship. It is very dark, very well written, and very interestingly formatted, which I'll get into next time. <laughs> 